going through COVID really is a, a game changer for for anyone. That that's what I know. It can either wreck our faith or strengthen it. And those who have caught who haven't caught the virus are are kind of left out. At, at least that's what I feel. Uh, I'm a little out of place because I haven't caught it. Uh, there's no hard and fast rule as to who among us will get it. And I was trying to reflect on the past events of our lives as a church. I cannot help but look at how our church have been affected by this experience. My knee-jerk reaction to those who have caught the virus is to pray for them for healing. But then suddenly I found myself praying for another thing. I found myself praying for courage and faithfulness. Because if this is part of our spiritual journey, then by all means, we have to learn the test. We have to learn how to deal with this because this is a test to strengthen our faith. When I went through an accident in 2005, uh, I've told you already in one of the sermons, I got shot in 2005. Um, there was a robbery. It left a mark on my cheek and on my neck. That's why I have a trichostomy mark on my neck here. And every time people ask me, I, I kind of tell them the summary of it, but, but that leaves uh, the mark in here. And every time I look at the mirror, I cannot help but think of the way that God has spoken to me. It was not audible, but it was clear enough. The marks I have works like a memorial that I carry every day. Now, speaking of memorial, uh, a couple of years ago, I visited uh, the Ground Zero in Nagasaki, Japan. Who have here been to Japan? Cool. All right. Um, it's, a, it's a great experience. What happened was, in 1945, to end the war, the Americans forced the Japanese Imperial Army to surrender. And the way to do that, they dropped two bombs, one in Hiroshima and second in Nagasaki, uh, August 6, 1945 and August 9, 1945. It's uh, kind of special to me because nine was my birthday. So one of the couple of years ago, I went to Nagasaki to uh, see it for myself. I have only seen it in television and read in books. But I went there, and when I got there, um, this ground zero, the, the exact place where the bomb, the nuclear fission bomb, dropped, became a memorial to them. They built a memorial place to them. Uh, it was believed that there are about 300,000 Japanese died from the implosion and the after effects of the bomb. The name of the bomb, if you're interested, is called Fat Man, for whatever reason, because it's bigger than the first. The first one was called Little Boy. Uh, the second one was stronger because after uh, August 6, Japan did not yet surrender. So that the Americans uh, decided to drop another one, and that led to the surrender of Japan. Um, these bombs were meant to force the Japanese Imperial Army to surrender. Now also, um, in the Ground Zero, there was a museum that was built for exactly for this purpose. And there was this photo, um, I'm not sure if you can see it, there was this photo of the boy standing in Nagasaki. A um, couple of um, weeks after the bombing of Nagasaki. Uh, bodies have been piled up to be burnt. Um, there was no way that they could eliminate all those bodies, stinking bodies that has been burned because of the bomb. And this photographer, Joe O'Donnell, was part of the uh, United States Marine Corps, he was taking photographs. And he photographed this boy 
and he said this, and I quote, I saw a boy about 10 years old walking by. He was carrying a baby on his back. I saw that the baby was already dead. The men held the body by the hands and feet and placed it on the fire. The boy stood there straight without moving, watching the flames. He was biting his lower lip so hard that it shone with blood. The flame burned low like the sun going down. The boy turned around and walked silently. This was one of the most horrific photographs that I saw because even though th there was just a boy standing carrying his baby brother's dead baby brother's uh, body on his back, he was trying to keep you know, everything uh, by himself, for himself. Uh, but, but we can, um, we can sense the pain in the photograph. It was taken in black and white. The surrender uh, of Japan came with a promise that Japan will never again raise an army for war. And because of that, Japan paid dearly to learn this lesson and remember the shame. Now, speaking of memorial, allow me to transition to Joshua chapter 4, because this is our sermon today. Joshua chapter 4 talks also about memorial, as, um, as the Nagasaki is also a memorial. Joshua chapter 4, though, uh, starts on a positive note because it talks about the triumph and the memorialization of God's power and redemption. It was so important that God specifically commanded Joshua to make sure that the people and the future generations remember this. Now, this particular act of God, the crossing of the Jordan River, we have talked about this last Sunday. They crossed the Jordan River, the water stopped. Although it was harvest time, the water was flowing greatly, but God stopped the flow of the river so that the nation of Israel might cross the river. Now, we can, we're picking up from the story from last Sunday. Um, I'm going to read chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, and kind of connect this from the sermon last Sunday. So it says, When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and I lay down in the place where you lodge tonight. Uh, then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, so that this may be a sign among you. Sign is like a memorial. So when your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off, so these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. So what exactly happened is, Joshua chapter 3 they crossed the Jordan. God stopped the flow of the water. Joshua chapter 4 is a sort of a continuation of the story. Because right after they crossed the Jordan, Joshua commanded 12 men to pick up 12 stones and bring the stones to another place and set up a memorial so that they will remember it forever. Now, one more thing is that Joshua himself set up 12 stones on the middle of the riverbed himself. 
so that it works also as a memorial. So there are two sets of memorial stones here. These memorial stones works like a ribbon-cutting ceremony when you open a business. It's something like that. It's the uh, inauguration of everything. Or probably when you bought a new house, this is where you put your key in, and there's a you know the beautiful clicking sound that you have a new house. So the entrance of the Israelites to the promised land is like the inauguration of them getting their inheritance finally. That means for 40 years, they have been waiting to get into the land, and finally, the stopping of the flow of the river was their initial entrance to the promised land and their inauguration to come into the promised land. Uh, let me continue verse 21. It said, And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may hear, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So this is exactly what what the intention of God uh of stopping the flow of the River Jordan. Is it, it is to demonstrate his power to the Israelites. Now, let me backtrack a little bit. The first generation that came out of Egypt are the ones who, who witnessed all the miraculous things that God did, the 10 plagues, the, uh, the cloud, the fire, the manna for 40 years, all those things. The second generation are those people who, have, who were born in the wilderness. So they, they kind of witnessed the, the, the manna every day uh, and some of uh, the miraculous punishments of God, but they have not seen the, uh, the Red Sea. They did not see, oh, wow, how, how can that be, that the, the water of the Red Sea was split open. And so God was kind of bringing them again, this experience, so that they will see firsthand with their eyes how God is powerful. It reminds Israel to fear God and testify to the rest of the world that he is an almighty God. He's not just a God in Egypt or a God in the wilderness. He is God of all the earth. So here's the thing. Baal, the God in Canaan, is believed to be the Lord of the harvest. And at the time that they crossed the Jordan, the tide was up and it, the current was so strong because it was harvest time. Supposedly, that was the time when Baal himself was, you know, uh, worshipped being the Lord of the harvest. But the moment that God stopped the flow of the water, God is saying, or in, in fact, uh, saying to the people in Canaanite, uh, Canaan, that he is more powerful than Baal. He can stop the flow of the Jordan River. That's what it means for the Canaanite. So that when God stopped the flow of the water, it's not just a testimony to the people of Israel, but it also a testimony to the people in Canaan that God, Yahweh, is powerful. The very interesting, um, very interesting is how memorial works. So the 12 stones, again, work as a memorial, sort of a symbolism or object lessons for the people of Israel to understand and remember. Now think about it for a second. Why do you hang photos on your walls? Why do you keep that box full of old things that you neither use nor profit from? It is because they mean something to you. 
those keepsakes mean something to you. No matter how old, how rusty, how non-functional, you keep them because they mean something to you. That old wedding dress that you keep that doesn't fit you anymore, it means something to you, right? That old pair of shoes from the 1980s, that means something to you. That old photo album in black and white, that, that means something to you. These memorials work for, work for our sentiments because they teach us something. They make us remember something. So that when God commanded Joshua to set up 12 stones, these function as memorials so that the people of Israel will remember the mighty power of God. The thing is, it's hard sometimes to differentiate between the questions, what happened and what does it mean? What happened was the flow of the river stopped, but what does it mean for the Israelites? That's what we're more interested in. What does it mean for them and what does it mean to us? Now, I remember when I went to Nagasaki to see Ground Zero, after visiting the site, I went to a coffee shop to kind of sort, uh, kind of process the whole thing. It was overwhelming to me. And in the coffee shop, there was an elderly man uh, also having his co coffee. And he tried to explain to me the after effects of the bombing. I can't remember the exact words that he said, but there was one word in English that resonated with me. He mentioned the word shame. And with that, I understood the reference. You see, the Japanese uh, culture are well entrenched in the philosophy of Bushido. Bushido is the warrior code. That means in the event of defeat, they would rather commit seppuku or suicide rather than surrender because surrender brings shame. Seppuku is an act of courage. Their defeat doesn't just bring shame to the individual. Defeat also brings shame to the family. So that suicide to them is an act of bravery and surrender is an act of shame. And as he was telling me the effect of the bombing and the shame, there were tears in his eyes. And I could sense that. That's why when the Pacific War ended in the surrender of uh, Japan, it was decided that it was the Japanese foreign minister instead of the emperor of Japan will formally sign the documents of surrender. Because the Americans knew that if the emperor of Japan, Emperor Hirohito, would sign the surrender, it's possible that there will be mass suicide among the Japanese. And the Americans were, were uh, smart on this. So while the ground zero in Nagasaki symbolizes defeat, the memorial stones in Joshua chapter four stood for what they call Aliyah. Aliyah is the ascent. So Aliyah is celebrated uh, even today, the day of ascent, to memorialize the crossing of the Jordan. Um, when they founded the nation of Israel again in 1945, 1948, they also again the Aliyah. This is a national festival for Israel commemorating the crossing of the Jordan. They celebrate it in between August, uh, October 31, uh, sometimes November 1. I'm thinking in connection with this, I wonder if our kids, whenever they see us, would ask their parents why we drink grape juice from tiny cups every once a month and eat tiny pieces of wafers. Do your kids ask you why we do those uh, silly things? Why can't we have you know bigger cups? Why do we drink from small cups? Or probably uh, your kids might ask why do we dip people in the shallow part of the pool and clap our hands afterwards like it's a big deal. 
what does this mean? We, you know, we do things in the church that mean something. But what does it mean? I'd like you to focus now your attention on this particular verse because this is where it gets more exciting. Joshua chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. This is very interesting. It said, the people passed over in haste. Now that seems easy. And when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people. Now the mention of in haste and Passover brings you a remembrance of what happened in Egypt when on that night, that fateful night, the angel of death passed over. See, the words are repeated here. The angel of the Lord passed over uh, in every household of the Israelites because there was blood painted on the doorposts and on the windowsills. The angel of the Lord passed over. And because of that, the Egyptians did not know so that all the firstborns in Egypt died. And at that night, there was a great wailing and crying in Egypt so that Pharaoh finally allowed the people to go. So they went outside or they went and they went uh, outside of Egypt in haste or in a hurry. That's at least, that's what's explained here. So that's why when you go back to the Passover in Egypt, you have the unleavened bread. There was no time for the yeast to work its, its way because they were in a hurry, in haste. Now, when you read Joshua chapter 4, we are reminded of the continuation of Passover. Passover did not stop when they went out of Egypt. In fact, when they crossed the Jordan River, it was like a continuation of the story. If not for the 40 years in the wilderness, it was a shortcut. It was kind of easy breeze. But, you know, they were stuck for 40 years. So when Joshua chapter 4 uh, mentions the word Passover in haste, it reminds us that it, this is a continuation of this Passover. Now, I'd like you to put your thinking cap and activate your photographic skill because what I'm about to tell you is connected directly to the New Testament. It's and probably you have been thinking all along how these testaments are connected to one another. Now, again, the people passed over while the ark was standing in the middle of the riverbed. All the four priests carrying the ark of the covenant was in the middle of the riverbed. Uh, the flow of the water stopped at least uh, that's what it said now just when the people crossed all the people crossed the priests carrying the ark of the covenant it said passed over now make a mental picture of that now let me transition to mark chapter 6 now mark chapter 6 is the story of jesus walking in water now there's a continuation of the story and connectedness of the story of joshua chapter 4 the crossing of the jordan and Jesus walking in water. This is very interesting. Now, uh, have anyone seen anyone walk on water? Have anyone tried walking on water? No? Well, I've seen Chris Angel did that. Uh, David Blaine also did that. But Jesus is the original. Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 6, 45 to 52. Now, right before this event, before this event, Mark chapter 6 tells us that Jesus multiplied bread and fed 5,000 people. Immediately after feeding 5,000 people, he told his disciples to take a boat and cross the Sea of Galilee to go to the other side. But Jesus wanted to pray alone, so he left there. And so his disciples 
that night took the boat and rode towards the other side. The problem is, according to this passage, the wind was so strong that it was hard for the disciples to row the boat and reach the other side in time. Uh, listen to Mark chapter 6, uh, 47, 48. It said, And when evening came, the boat was out of the sea, and he was alone, that's Jesus. And when he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them, and about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. Fourth watch of the night means from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Took them that long. And that, uh, according to this, uh, about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. So what does that mean? That's a very interesting passage. The last phrase, he meant to pass by them. Yeah, see, the last time they were on the boat was Mark chapter 4. Now we're just continuing the story. Mark chapter 6, he walked on water. But Mark chapter 4, Jesus was on the boat. There was a storm. The disciples panicked. And they said, we're going to die. Jesus, you're sleeping. Uh, Jesus was so tired, he was sleeping. So Jesus woke up. He commanded the storms to stop. And it stopped. And immediately they said, who is this guy? Even obeys him. Who is this guy? Now apparently, according to to history, they've been with Jesus for about a year. That means for about a year, they did not really understand who Jesus is. So the question now is, is it possible to be with Jesus, to eat with him, to sleep with him, to be with him every day, and still fully not understand who he really is? Well, apparently, the, the answer to that is yes, it's possible. It's also possible to be baptized, to be a member of the church, to come to church every Sunday for many years and still not fully understand who Jesus really is. See, the disciples had first-hand information. They witnessed Jesus, they touched Jesus, they seen, they heard, and they still failed to understand. So it's possible. And this is the same critique that Jesus had for the Pharisees and scribes on his day. W listen to this. John chapter 5, this is what Jesus said. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The Pharisees of his day are the scholars. These people went to the seminary. These people are studying the Bible every day. They pray every day. All they know is the Bible. They search the scriptures, yet they did not believe in Jesus. Very interesting. That means these people although they have been reading the scriptures, but they failed to understand who Jesus really is. Now, going back to the phrase, he meant to pass by them. Jesus was walking on the waters, and he meant to pass by them. What do you mean? What was Mark trying to do when he wrote that? Now, you have probably heard of the guy named Job. Anyone? Job? Job is the guy who is, uh, the Bible, according to the Bible, he's blameless. But during his time, there was a sort of a gamble in heaven, kind of bet. But this guy lost everything. In one fell swoop, he lost all his children, and he lost all his property. And then he got this disease. And so, but th still he maintains that he's innocent. Now, according to his time, the only reason why a person will experience a tragedy like that is because if he is uh, unrighteous. But Job maintains that he is righteous, he is innocent. 
So in between pain of losing his children and his properties, he sat down to grieve. And in the middle of his agony, he bursts out claiming that God is righteous, God is sovereign, God is wise, but he's innocent. He's saying there's no connection between what happened to me and the goodness of God. And he starts to describe what God does. And in verse 8 of Job chapter 9, this is what he said. He's trying to describe who God is. And then in verse 8, he said, He who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Are you seeing this? What, what Job is saying is that he's describing God as walking on top of the raging sea. Only God can walk on the waters. That's what he's saying here. Now, is it possible that Mark had this in mind when he narrated that Jesus was walking on the waters? If that's the case, by walking on water, was Jesus trying to reveal his real identity to the disciples? So that what it means when he said he meant to pass by them is that he meant to be seen by the disciples so that he can demonstrate his real identity as who he is. Make no mistake about it. By walking on water, those who see Jesus will have no other conclusion but to identify him with the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh. So again, the question, why did Jesus intend to pass by them? What was this short phrase do doing in here? Now, if we continue Job chapter 9 and we skip some verses, we go to verse 11, this is what it said. Job said, behold, he passes by me. He's talking about God. I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. It's very interesting. The God who's walking on water, according to Job in verse 11, he passes by me and I see him not. Now, there's this very smart scholar, uh, Richard Hayes. He's an expert in biblical metalepsis and echoes. He said that the phrase he meant to pass by them is a metaphor for the human inability to grasp God's power over nature. That means the disciples were terrified when they saw Jesus, instead of acknowledging that it was Jesus, uh, instead of saying, hey, Jesus, it was you all along was walking on water, they said, uh, the Bible said they were terrified. Why were they terrified? Because they thought he was a ghost. A ghost means he was already dead and now a ghost. That's why he can walk on water. That's very interesting, uh, very interesting way to, to put it. What really happened is that they failed to see the God of Israel in the person of Jesus. They knew about Job chapter 9, verse 8. They knew about Job chapter 9, verse 11. They knew it was only God who can walk on water. And when they saw Jesus, instead of acknowledging that Jesus has the power, like Yahweh, they said they thought he was a ghost. They were terrified of Jesus. And let's, let's make a connection here. Uh, we're talking about Joshua chapter 4, the Ark of the Covenant, and, and Jesus. See, the Ark of the Covenant is the throne of God. The Ark of the Covenant, according to chapter 4 of Joshua, passed over the people. Now, different words, but the same visual imagery. As the Ark of the Covenant passed over the people, Mark chapter 6 says, Jesus meant to pass by them. That means, whatever we think, the Ark of the Covenant is directly related to Jesus. Now, as the Ark of the Covenant passed over the people in the same way, Jesus too meant to pass by them. 
As Yahweh, through the Ark of the Covenant, rescued the people and allowed them to cross the Jordan River, Jesus also came to rescue the, the disciples from the strong wind. But what I think is the rescue really, the rescue really is from their failure to understand who Jesus really is. Because, you know, in any other day, Jesus doesn't have to walk on water. He didn't have to. He could have done something else. But why this? And he did not do this every day. But why do this at, at this point? Because he was revealing himself little by little. And still, according to the Bible, the disciples failed to understand who Jesus really is. Now, what's fascinating to me, it's... It was so easy for the disciples to miss the fact that Jesus was in the boat with them during the storm. Again, going back to Mark chapter 4, Jesus was on the boat with them. Although he was sleeping, but Jesus was on the boat with them. And they panicked. Is it possible that we believe in God, believe in Jesus, declare him to be our Lord and Savior, and yet when COVID comes, we panic? Why? because probably God is sleeping. I don't feel him. He's far away. He probably have abandoned me or whatnot. Is it possible to feel the same way? I think the more we know Jesus, the more we understand who Jesus really is, the more our trust and faith in him will grow. That's, that's what's being said here. Mark chapter 4 is about the storm, but chapter 6 it took about split second for the disciples to recognize that the one walking was not a ghost, but it was Jesus. In fact, Jesus hopped into the boat to, to rescue them. It was easy for them to believe in Job chapter eight, 9, verse 8, that God can walk on water, or Joshua chapter 3 and 4, that God can stop the flow of the Jordan River. But it was too hard for them to recognize that Jesus has the power over the storm, the power to multiply bread, and the power to walk on water. Now, why did they fail to recognize Jesus? Simple. Because only Yahweh can do those things. They could not make a connection that a human being, in a person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, can walk on water, can do those things that Yahweh, the God of Israel, can do. If Jesus can do those things, then we have no other explanation but to believe that somehow Jesus is identified with Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now, in making connection of this, I wouldn't be surprised that in the church today, we too have a different understanding of Jesus. Now, why do I say that? Now, Oprah, a very popular uh, talk show host who claims to be a Christian and grew up in a Baptist tradition responded to one of her audience in one of her shows. And uh, one of her audience said, Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. And Oprah said, and I quote, Jesus couldn't possibly be the only way to God. How could that be? Another one, in 2020, there was a survey conducted by a faith-based organization in Florida said that there's about 52% of U.S. adults say that they believe Jesus Christ is not divine. Now, one-third of those from mainstream evangelicals, that means one-third of all the Christians in the USA, uh, in the survey, agreed that Jesus Christ isn't God. While 65% said Jesus Christ is the first and the greatest being created by God. Let's bring this home. 
if I asked you right now, who is Jesus to you? Uh, the usual answer would be probably be Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior. A good answer, but what does it mean? What does it mean to say that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior? See, the first and the second century church, that means the first 100 and 200 years after Jesus Christ, worshiped together on closed doors because of persecution. They tried to gather together on the pain of death. In comparison, the church today claims Jesus to be Lord, yet chooses to stay at home because of the threat of coronavirus. I can't seem to understand that. It might be an exaggeration on my part, but the first century believers, to claim that Jesus Christ is Lord means to put convenience at the very bottom of their priorities. To them, the call to deny oneself, pick up your cross, and follow him is a serious business. To say that Jesus Christ is Lord is really to put your life on the line. There's, no, there's a quick and easy way to really check if we are serious with our claim to who Jesus really is. Uh, show me your calendar year, and I will tell you if that reflects the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Show me your budget and how you spend your money, and I will tell you if Jesus is Lord. See, there must be a reason why Jesus commands us to seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Seek the kingdom of God first. You know, in, in Matthew chapter 5, there, was, there were other sermons of not to worry, not to panic, but to trust God, and then this chapter 6 of Matthew, seek ye first the kingdom of God. There must be a reason for that. So normally, we make plans... And we pray to God to bless our plans. That's good. Pla planning is, uh, is good. Nothing wrong with that. But you see, seeking the kingdom of God first means aligning our plans to his. That means anything that contradicts his will and his righteousness should automatically be off the table. That means my plan should follow his plan. That's what it means to seek God's kingdom first. That means... My priorities, my resources, my schedule must be aligned with these priorities. At least that's what it means to seek the kingdom of God first. That means if I seriously claim that Jesus Christ is Lord, then I must seek the kingdom of God first. So let me ask you again. When you say Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, what does it mean to you? Whatever we have done in the past, when we were baptized, it was a memorial for us. It reminds us of something. It reminds us that we follow Jesus in the baptism. When we take the Lord's Supper and eat the bread, it reminds us, it's a memorial, that we follow Jesus Christ. We are subservient to his will. And every time we pray and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord, it means we are servants of Jesus Christ. That means we go by his will. We follow whatever he wants. That's what it means to say Jesus Christ is Lord. And if my life today does not reflect that claim that Jesus Christ is Lord, then Jesus Christ is not your Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, for reminding us once again. There are many things that happen, and there are challenges ahead of us. We are not yet sure what will happen this year, um, coronavirus has not stopped. We have not eliminated this pandemic. But nothing changed. 
because you are still God. You're the God of the, the past, the present, and the future. And that as we claim that Jesus Christ is Lord and He's alive, we are proclaiming also, Father, that we are your servants, that we follow you in whatever you, you plan for us. Father, we testify that as a church, we gather every Sunday as a testimony to our community that you are Jesus. Every time we wake up on Sunday morning, we dress up to come to church, it's a testimony that we are following you as our Lord and Savior. Every time we get up in the morning, even during the weekdays, we go to work, we perform our schedules, we are testifying too that you are our Lord and Savior. In fact, it is the greatest challenge in Romans 12 that our worship is our worship when we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to you. That means whatever we say, whatever we think, whatever we do supports that claim that you are truly Lord and Savior. Father, will you, in your special way, talk to us? deal with us. If we fail to uphold you as Lord, Father, will you change our hearts? Father, will you help us better understand what it means to follow you as our Lord and Savior? In Jesus' name we pray.